It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who did all the work in group projects in school, and now they're doing all the work in this big pandemic group project. Yeah, doing the work for everybody. Good job. <laughs> I don't know how good our grade is, but it's going to be the best grade we can get, thanks to you. I mean, sometimes when you do all the work, but you're alone doing it, you still get a D minus. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're all. I think we're all going to get saddled with the same grade, thanks to a certain number of people. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonster, a general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And this week, we are going to talk to our friend Erica Dewald from Vaccinate Your Family. I wanted to have a discussion with her because there's been changes in anti-vaccine leadership over the last three, four years. And we just kind of wanted to have step back and take an overview of who's been leading the direction and how that directionality is changed, especially now that we're sort of on the precipice of more possible changes since, again, we're in the middle of a pandemic still. So that is a discussion we are going to have, and I'm betting it's going to be wonderful and that her children are going to contribute some beautiful background noise to it. (laughs) It's really going to be worth a listen because everything that we have experienced in the last 10 plus years when it comes to the anti-vaccine movement um, has really kind of come to a head and I think is kind of a prognosticator for things to come. So uh, don't touch that dial. And also Erica is just a great public speaker and a great guest and a lot of fun and I like her a lot. So she's worth listening to anytime you get the chance. But before we turn to that interview, of course, we want to do our own around the webses. I'm going to let Nathan go first because I'm curious what it's going to be. Yeah, mine's a little, um, this is really exciting and interesting to me, uh, although it's a little bit of old news. So, you know, things have been going on lately and I haven't caught all the vaccine news over the summer. Um, And so I was doing a presentation uh, for a mutual friend of ours uh, presenting at uh, a kind of a coalition of of uh, dental groups uh, and talking about HPV vaccine. And one of the things historically when we've talked about HPV vaccine, we all know that it is FDA approved for the prevention of cervical cancer, of course, and then it also got FDA approved for the prevention of other cancers, particularly some cancers in males. Um, but one of the things that we know about HPV vaccine that the evidence shows is that it also is effective against certain HPV-associated head and neck cancers, right? But it's always been a little bit difficult to have that discussion because it has not historically actually been FDA-approved for the prevention of those cancers. It's FDA-approved for the prevention of cervical cancer and penile cancer and uh, vulvar and vaginal cancers and anal cancers, but not for head and neck cancers. So having those discussions it's kind of like well we really support this but you know this is not an actual fda indication how do we approach this well it turns out over the summer in june hpv vaccine actually did get fda approval for the prevention of oropharyngeal cancers so we can now 
put like hang a hat on that and be able to even more confidently recommend this for the prevention of those cancers. And that's no small thing because when we talk about the cancers that HPV vaccine prevents, in males, a good hunk of those are head and neck cancers. And if you look at all the cancers that are caused by HPV, a good third of them are in males, and it's mostly head and neck cancers. So this happened over the summer. I believe my, my take on this is that it had just been more difficult or, or Merck had not necessarily wanted to pursue the FDA approval for this indication just because it's a little more difficult to study because unlike some of the other cancers, particularly cervical cancer, there's a lot of causes of head and neck cancer so there you know cervical cancer hpv pretty much causes all of the cervical cancer so that's very easy to study it's just a little bit more tricky to study head and neck cancers when there are many different causes but they got kind of tentative approval to be licensed for the prevention of hpv of hpv associated head and neck cancers based on all the existing evidence that's been out there kind of the observational evidence and whatnot they are tasked with doing a trial now that will be followed um, to to kind of prove it more succinctly um, for the continuation of that approval but as long as that goes well um, Gardasil is approved for the prevention of head and neck cancer. So that's my exciting news that happened over the summer. And I didn't even realize it inst until I was working on this particular presentation. Well, that is important. It, one of the things is I know it's really hard to prove that the HPV vaccine is preventing or oropharyngeal cancers because there isn't a pap smear for your throat to be right. blunt. That would be awful. Um <laughs> but it is really exciting because those cancers have been on the rise. The number one cause of those cancers is HPV at this point. Although I just want to put a note in there that Eddie Van Halen recently passed away from throat cancer, but he was also a lifelong smoker. So it, it again, that sort of illustrates the difficulty you have proving how well the vaccine is performing in reducing those cancers because could Eddie Van Halen have had HPV caused throat cancer or tobacco caused throat cancer? We don't know, but it's exciting. Yeah, it is. And it's just another good, I, I always like being able to give a full recommendation like that where I can just say without having to have caveats. Yes. This will reduce your chance of, of head and neck cancers because I think that's pivotal in talking to um, to males about this, to talking to parents of boys about this, about why this is important because you have such – as wonderful as HPV vaccine is as a cervical cancer prevention vaccine, when we pigeonhole it like that, I think we do it a disservice. Um, and I think it's very effective to talk with parents uh, – about the prevention of head and neck cancers because I think that broadens their thought about the HPV vaccine and gets out of the kind of mindset that it's related to, that it has to do with sexually transmitted diseases and stuff like that that can be stigmatized. I think that that's super important. I do know a pediatrician who, when she starts getting a little bit of resistance from you know, 11, 12-year-old boys about getting the HPV vaccine will say, and it prevents penile cancer. And that apparently elicits a lot of cooperation from her male 
patience as far as being like, okay, if you just stop saying penile, I will get this vaccine. (laughs) Well, and also genital warts, because I think that although a teenager may not really be thinking about cancer later on, thinking about having warts on your penis right now is not something that any teenager wants to think about. So that's something to not forget for those that are out there that are counseling people about the HPV vaccine. Uh, that that is an important thing to bring up because we're talking about some significant quality of life mm-hmm. effect um, if you don't reduce that risk of penile awards, of genital awards. And, you know, I never want to diminish how important vaccines in general are around quality of life. You know, not being hospitalized, not being sick, those are all worthy reasons to get vaccinated even if like you get the flu and you don't end up in the hospital, but you just don't want to get sick. I mean, wh- you know, why not? I-, I had one kiddo, I've told this story before, who got rotavirus, didn't end up in the hospital. We didn't even have to go to the doctor. I just called them about four or five times as I was counting diarrheas a day and we never broke the threshold. But even then, when I when his younger brother was able to get a vaccine because it became available, I- I broke down in tears because like, oh, thank goodness we don't have to go through that again. Disease is terrible, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. kill or hospitalize you. It's bad. Yep. And that's another good reason to wear your mask and distance and mm-hmm. buckle down, which I have a feeling may segue into what you want to talk about today. Interesting. You should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> but there was exciting news, albeit preliminary, out of Pfizer's clinical trial that I guess there were 44,000 people in the clinical trial of their COVID-19 vaccine, Mm -hmm. and it looks like it is about 90% effective, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. And that 90% effective means that 90% of the people who got the COVID vaccine, as compared to those who got the placebo, did not come down with COVID-19. It's probably a little more complicated than that. I'm certain I'm oversimplifying it. But that's the basics of it. And with that large sample, I feel fairly confident that it's going to be an effective vaccine at preventing completely disease. Now, as I've talked to Dr. Offit about this before, about how it is easier to prevent severe disease than mild disease and that um you know that's what our flu vaccine does is that it prevents severe disease really well and mild disease less well although not it you know it doesn't completely not prevent mild disease so when we're looking at a, a vaccine that prevents mild disease as this covid vaccine from pfizer looks like it's doing that's really exciting because you I, you have to assume, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, you have to assume that for the 10% who might get it, sort of like the chickenpox vaccine, you would assume it would be a milder course. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable assumption. We don't have all the data reported yet. In fact, I don't think we have any um, specific you know, reported data to review. This is from a right. release that they uh, provided, but it is extremely promising i it it gives me this kind of in in combination with other recent events gives me a little bit of hope here for the future and 
You know, I've been saying for months, you know, let's wait until the information is in. Let's not get worried about whether you will or will not get a coronavirus vaccine. Let's wait until the re experts recommend it. Let's wait until we know the all the information on it. But this should give people, um, you know, I think it, it, it is something that should reassure us because if we had a vaccine that was showing 50% effectiveness or 60% effectiveness, you know, I'd still want to get that assuming it's mm -hmm. safe. Um, but that's going to cause a lot more hesitancy. If we're looking at a vaccine that can mm -hmm. clearly reduce COVID rates at that level, that is huge. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how this pans out. So a couple of notes about the Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine is an RNA vaccine, mm -hmm. which means that it teaches the body to produce the spike proteins so that the body can also produce... Uh, antibodies to those spike proteins mm -hmm. which is sort of crazy at how technologically advanced that is yeah and it's really interesting science um and even though it's new as best as the, the as the evidence shows there's really not reason to be worried that because it's in kind of a new style of vaccine that we should be particularly worried about mm -hmm. safety that's not to say that the anti-vaccine movement won't heavily leverage the fact that this is new technology but mm -hmm. um there's really no indication in 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 the science behind it or um the information that we have on it as to be super nervous about it being a new kind of vaccine right and it's not brand new this is a technology yeah. that scientists have been working on since about 2013 2014 when they realized we needed to develop vaccines faster in response to pandemics and epidemics such as mm -hmm. Ebola. So this is, I mean, it sounds brand new because COVID is brand new, but it is a technology that's been at work. It's been tried um, out with the MERS virus, which is related to COVID-19. It's another coronavirus. Mm -hmm. uh, that vaccine never got all the way completed for multiple reasons, including that MERS never became a pandemic. Um, but, you know, another thing about, uh, uh, I'm sorry, another two things about the Pfizer vaccine is that it is a vaccine that was developed without federal money, without Operation Warp Speed money. Right. So that's kind of incredible. And also it sort of points to some reason for optimism about the other vaccines being developed, because I am completely apolitical when it comes to name brands about vaccines i usually try to not even learn what they are and who makes them so mm -hmm. that i can be completely neutral on it because i'm not a spokesperson for any pharmaceutical company but but everyone's talking about pfizer right now and also we we do have reason to be optimistic that the human body can respond well to a vaccine for COVID-19. Now we do know that there are superior and inferior vaccines such as the shingles vaccines that the the mm -hmm. new one is superior the old one is actually has been taken off the market because of ACIP recommendations favoring the newer vaccine. And so and I just want to give a side note. 
I usually hate all pharmaceutical commercials, but that shingles vaccine commercial where they're, you know, they're going along and they're like, I'm eating well. And then the guy comes in, shingles doesn't care. I love that vaccine so <laughs> much. <laughs> it's so great. Um, I want them to make commercials like that for every vaccine. You know, measles doesn't care either. Doesn't care. You know, I've always said measles doesn't care what you ate for breakfast. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, getting off track, I'm I'm excited about this preliminary data. I'm excited to see what's going to happen when the FDA gets their hands on it and gets to look at it and really tear it apart. And apparently within 24 hours of the FDA approving it, the company is going to be ready to ship the vaccine out in very large batches, I guess about a thousand doses per shipment out to people who order it. And so it, it things are going to start moving quickly now. Yeah. I do recommend people start paying attention to what the FDA and ACIP are doing. It's it's going to start moving quickly. So how whatever your reliable news source on this is, of course, also, I also want to say, no matter who you are, get your information from a news source and then check another news source. At least yeah. double check everything you're learning, even if you're a safe consumer of news and you don't go for the more salacious news outlets. Still double check things and rely on our trusted experts that listeners of this podcast know well. I also want to stress that although things are things may be moving quickly right now. We are in a serious crunch time. Mm -hmm. uh, like this gap between now and when that vaccine comes out and when other changes might occur that can help get control of this virus is, I don't, I don't know what it's like in wherever listener you are in the country or the world, but here in Iowa, things are at a boiling point when it comes to COVID. Mm -hmm. It is more important now than at any point this year to stay home, to mm -hmm. absolutely limit your exposure to other people, change your holiday plans if at all possible, mm -hmm. um, wear your mask whenever you are inside a building or going to be within six feet of somebody outside. Uh, and um, I'm sure I'm forgetting, you know, socially distance, do all the things that we've been wanting to do, saying to do. Wash do your not hands. not go out to eat. Do not go to, you know, do not go to bars and restaurants, wash your mm -hmm. hands frequently, uh, be super careful because, uh, the, the rates, the, the community spread of code right now is absolutely horrific. And I want to save as many lives as we can between now and mm -hmm. when we have a vaccine and when we have changes, um, to reduce the spread of this virus. Yeah. Now's the time. It is crunch time. Let me get a Buckle little parochial down. with this too. Yeah about how we all really need to work together because I live in a state, Minnesota, that is surrounded, literally surrounded by the highest case rates in the country, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin. Now, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Iowa have basically no restrictions about anything. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... You oh, and you know, we just got a mask mandate yesterday in Iowa. For the whole state? For the whole state's tattoo parlors 
and massage clinics and salons. Well, that seems useless. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, okay. <laughs> That's it. I'm actually like rubbing my forehead right now. Yeah. So Minnesota has had a mask mandate since July. Yeah. Any public spaces you go into, you have to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. We've, we've ha- we have pretty strict school protocols as far as, you know, 5% of student students' body gets COVID. You shut the whole school down. If your county is above a certain case number, everyone goes to distance learning, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a capacity limit for indoor gatherings at homes, in churches, in you know, wedding venues, there's um, a capacity limit for restaurants and bars. Well, it hasn't been good enough because we are, it's like every other section of the pool is the peeing section and we're the non-peeing section. Pretty much. And for many of these states, there's a lot of cross-border stuff that happens, particularly in North Dakota with, you know, the Fargo-Moorhead area. Moorhead's on the Minnesota side, Fargo's on the North Dakota side. People might live on one side and work in the other. Same thing with the Duluth-Superior area as far as, like, Superior, Wisconsin and Duluth, Minnesota. People go back and forth a lot. Even in the Twin Cities metropolitan area of Minneapolis, St. Paul, there are people who live in Hudson, Wisconsin, or even further into Wisconsin who work in the Twin Cities. So, you know... Borders, we haven't put up a wall between us and Wisconsin yet. I'm still advocating for that. I'm kidding, Wisconsin people. We love you and your cheese. (laughs) Uh, But it's really an illustration of the rates in Minnesota are climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, So our governors had to put even more mandates, uh, closing bars at 10 p.m., limiting even further those indoor gatherings, asking like no more than three households worth of people to get together. So, you know, if you've got four friends getting together and you all live in different houses, don't do that. Um, And honestly, like I'm doing like I'm only hanging out with my household right now Mm -hmm. because the rates are so bad. And it just shows how much how important cooperation is in a pandemic or in any scenario, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. it's it's great if your school has a 100% uptake rate for MMR, but, mm-hmm. but if the school next door to you only has like 5% of kids getting the MMR vaccine, you might get some sick kids over in your school because, you know, they might meet each other someplace. So it's really public health really only works when we all do it together and it crosses borders too. It really is an illustration or kind of a larger example of what we've said. And I think Dr. Offit frequently says where he talks about how if you're a vaccinated person in an unvaccinated community, your rate, your chance of getting whatever disease, measles, is higher than if you're Mm -hmm. an unvaccinated person in a vaccinated community. And so, so many of us that are, you know, places where there's mask mandates or whatever, we're essentially, assuming there's good compliance, you're still a vaccinated person in an unvaccinated community. When there's Mm -hmm. a lot of spreading disease around, your vaccine can only do so much. You still got that hard percent chance that your vaccine didn't work. And also sometimes 
the amount of exposure and the viral load and the frequency of that affects that efficacy. Same thing is mm -hmm. true about, you know, mask wearing and distancing. Like if there's just a lot of exposure coming in and you're Minnesota and we're all bringing it into the state over and over again, you can only do so much before it can start spreading more. So everybody absolutely. I mean, that's what we're all about at Voices for Vaccines. As vaccine advocates, we are vaccination itself is a group project. Everybody has to do their part for it to work the best. That's herd immunity uh, distilled down. So do your part. And once again, I think that is a great note to leave it on. And that's the message. We want every listener to be shouting from their rooftops <laughs> until this thing is over. Um, one last thing I want to leave us with before we go to our interview with Erica, and that is that Voices for Vaccines is uh, working to free up some of my time editing this podcast. If anyone has ever edited an audio anything before, you know it's incredibly time consuming. <laughs> right there edit that out yeah, that's gonna take you like an hour to edit that part out right there right it's incredibly time consuming yeah and so i started a little fundraiser over on mightycause.com to ask for people to be monthly recurring donors you know just i just need a few more people to donate i mean really like three more people to donate ten dollars a month and then i can have hours of my life back to work on you know the projects i'm working on with coalitions and the motivational interviewing in low and in middle income countries project that i'm working on all those like big non-podcast things i'm mm -hmm. doing um, so please go to mightycause.com, search for Voices for Vaccines, and you'll see our various uh, our various fundraisers. I'm also going to be starting an, another fundraiser there. But I want to thank right now Allison Haygood and Liz Dietz, who are both uh, monthly recurring donors who are helping me to get this podcast edited. So thank you to them. Love both of you guys. Super loyal Indeed. friends. Not only friends of the pod, but friends of me personally. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And me. And you. You're both They're of my us. Friends. When we come back, we're talking to Erica Dewald from Vaccinate Your Family. We are joined now by Erica Dewald. Director of Advocacy at Vaccinate Your Family, and all-around great gal. Hi, Erica. Hi, guys. How are you? I am okay. We brought you here today to talk about the shifting and changing face as of the anti-vaccine movement, the modern anti-vaccine movement, of course, because you've really been following the anti-vaccine movement for a number of years. So can you tell us a little bit about how the modern anti-vaccine movement got started in the 1980s. Basically, in the 1980s, what first made people become afraid of vaccines? Sure. So I 
back in the 19, early 1980s, there was a show on NBC that first suggested whole cell pertussis vaccine was somehow involved with brain damage or inflammation or swelling of some variety. And there was a woman watching the show that night by the name of Barbara Lowe Fisher. And to her, that story sounded similar to what had happened to her son after he had received his whole cell pertussis vaccine. And so Barbara Lowe Fisher got together with a couple of other parents who thought that their children had also had an adverse reaction to the vaccine and formed a group called Dissatisfied Parents Together, DPT, which is very clever, right? Because the vaccine was named DTP. Um, and, and they worked to work with the government, work with pharmaceutical companies to move away from a whole cell pertussis vaccine to the acellular pertussis vaccine that we use now. But unlike other vaccine advocates like John Salamone, who worked, for example, to move us from oral polio vaccine to an injected polio vaccine, uh, Barbara Lowe Fisher and her team didn't pack up and go home. They continued. They continued to posit that vaccines caused all sorts of conditions that people had never considered before. And when I say all sorts of conditions, I mean everything from allergies to HIV. And in the 19, uh, late 1980s, 1986 to be specific, Congress was looking at all of these lawsuits that were coming out of these supposed connections between whole cell pertussis vaccine and various injuries. And pharmaceutical companies were dropping out of the vaccine business. Um, we were down to just two vaccine companies after we had had quite a few in years past. And so Congress sort of looked at this and said, we've got to do something to save vaccines. We need to be able to vaccinate children. What can we do? And they introduced something called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act. And this created what's commonly known as the vaccine court, where anyone who feels that they have been injured or a loved one has been injured by a vaccine can get easy, quick compensation. Barbara Lowe Fisher and her team saw this and decided to change their name from Dissatisfied Parents Together to the National Vaccine Information Center. Um, she very cleverly figured out how to work search engines before there were search engines. And so over the next 10 years, she worked to put any and all rumors she could about vaccines out into the public. Um, not a lot stuck until, of course, 1998 and Andrew Wakefield. So I want to go back a little bit because she was also not the only gal in town, if I remember correctly. There was also Lynn Redwood, correct? So Lynn Redwood really came into the picture just after Andrew Wakefield. So Andrew Wakefield in 1998 posits that the measles component of the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, caused autism. We now know, of course, that he not only uh, was working with a legal firm that was planning to sue over these supposedly uh, autism injuries, but he also had a patent on a single measles virus uh, vaccine. So he stood to profit. But what ended up happening was a lot of parents who had children with autism, who did not have a lot of answers about why their children had autism, started to look at vaccines. And in 2000, Lynn Redwood, Mark Laxell, uh, and a couple other ladies, Sally Bernard, um, and another gentleman got together and decided, you know what? The symptoms of autism look to us to be mercury poisoning. 
and what was in vaccines at that time, but a mercury-based preservative named thimerosal. And so they suggested in 1999-2000 that autism was actually a result of thimerosal poisoning from vaccines. So I'd like to know a little bit about, you you talked about these groups that get together and and kind of around a common um, idea or a myth. Um, How do these groups end up getting funded, especially back in the 1980s? Who was funding the dissatisfied parents together? Who's funding Safe Minds? How did these groups actually get enough money to get traction? So that's a great question. Uh, You know, I don't know that anyone knows how they were funded in the 80s and the 90s. It very much was grassroots, small, concentrated um, activity. The big money doesn't seem to have come into this this issue until the 2000s. And case in point, so the Washington Post uh, did a, a, a story about a year ago on Dr. Mercola, did a story about a year ago on Dr. Mercola. And they found a video of Barbara Lowe Fisher saying, thank goodness Dr. Mercola came around with his funding and Vic almost shut down. Um, so it sounds like there wasn't a ton of funding, particularly into the late 90s and early 2000s until they found these new avenues of ideas and funding. So now we have kind of the establishment of the myth that vaccines cause autism that came from Andrew Wakefield. We have uh, Lynn Redwood's group uh, pushing the idea that this is somehow related to the thimerosal, which we know didn't pan out. But how did it go then from there? How has it come into this idea that it vaccines, any vaccine, doesn't matter, anything can cause autism if it's a vaccine? How did we evolve to this point? So it's funny, the sort of circular motion of the anti-vaccine movement. So we start in the 1980s with Barbara Lowe Fisher and her colleagues saying vaccines can cause anything. They can cause allergies. They can cause HIV. They can cause rheumatoid arthritis, right? And then we narrowed into autism, thanks to Wakefield and Safe Minds. But what they realized around about 2007, when Jenny McCarthy comes onto the scene, right? And she says, Evan is my science, right? I saw the light go out of his eyes after the MMR vaccine. And what that helped us understand, sorry, let me start that over so that you don't get the kids in there. So you see this wonderful, interesting, circular motion of the anti-vaccine movement. So it started with Barbara Lowe Fisher and her colleagues in the 1980s, connecting vaccines to anything and everything they could, right? But then it narrowed into autism with Andrew Wakefield and Safe Minds in 1998 through about 2001. But once Jenny McCarthy came onto the scene in 2007 and said that her son had autism and her son was injured by the MMR vaccine, it began to actually peter out. The switch came in 2010. So in 2010, Andrew Wakefield had lost his medical license in the United Kingdom, and it had been firmly established by the science that vaccines do not cause autism. They do not cause autism. They do not contribute to autism. And so the anti-vaccine movement was left wondering, where do we go next? We're not listened to when we talk about autism. What can we talk about? And so Mark Blaxel, who was a member of Safe Minds, came up with this idea of what if we talk about the fact that vaccines are causing our children to somehow be less healthy, right? So if you look at the data recently, it seems as if there is an uptick of things like allergies, ADHD, 
um, autism, right? What if we expand out and create this umbrella? And so that's what they did. In 2010, the Canary Party was formed by Mark Laxell, Ginger Taylor, and a few others. And they attempted to expand the conversation. Although whenever they did get a platform, they, of course, ended up talking about autism. That didn't really take off either, right? Because people saw through it. So they thought again, what can we talk about this time? That's when health choice came into the picture. Well, shouldn't you be able to choose whether or not you get yourself, your family, and your children vaccinated? That had a little more staying power. However, what ultimately um, took effect was, so while you have Mark Blacksell talking about health choice, you had National Vaccine Information Center and Barbara Lowe Fisher, because they're still around, you have them talking about parental rights. And so about three, four years ago, you see these two movements pushing forward. Shouldn't you be able to choose versus shouldn't you have the right as a parent to do what you want with your child's health? So a lot of this stuff was taking place in the 1980s and the 1990s and the early 2000s. I am fortunate enough that I had my first child in the early 2000s before something very important happened, and that was the widespread usage of social media. So how did these players who had been around for a while, who knew how to use Oprah, who knew how to use Jenny McCarthy, who knew how to frame the idea of you know, parent, parental choice or general health woes, how were they able to transition and create themselves as social media phenomena? They saw the potential for social media to carry their message very quickly because remember, they no longer had outlets through traditional media Newspapers weren't covering them anymore. News channels weren't covering them anymore. Um, and so when social media came out, I think groups like Vaccinate Your Family immediately saw an opportunity to reach out to the average person, reach out to the public. But we didn't need the channel the way they needed that channel. And so they jumped on it. Um, and they were working to together um, to figure out, you know, what are the messages that are going to resonate? How do we get those messages out more quickly? They were also more tuned to uh, things like advertising on social media. The fact that you could buy an ad buy on Facebook for relatively few dollars, right? And really get your message out there. So it was a matter of need um, in their case that made them more tuned to the opportunity. So now we are in this social media environment. Who has emerged as the quote-unquote leaders? Who's in charge? Now? So when we think about who's in charge online, I think you have three strong voices. The first still being National Vaccine Information Center and Barbara Lowe Fisher. Um, they've done an excellent job maintaining their share of voice online and off. But I think we have two relatively new players. So the first is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He, of course, has been involved at least tangentially to this movement since about 2004 when he did an article for Rolling Stone, I believe it was. 
But he now runs a group called Children's Health Defense, um, and they have a very strong following online. Obviously, he has that star power um, that people are are more apt to follow. But also then a gentleman by the name of Del Bigtree. So Del Bigtree runs the Informed Consent Action Network. He came to the table a couple of years ago after a movie called Vaxxed. Um, he was a producer on a movie called Vaxxed. And he is very charismatic, uh, very camera-friendly, um, and, and, you know, has a huge following on social media and beyond. So I have a question about d- this Dell person and also RFK Jr. Do you have a theory about why it is that we have men taking the lead at this point? You know, Barbara Lowe Fisher was such a force to be reckoned with for, for so long. And, and Lynn Redwood, even though she was behind the scenes a little bit, huge force to be reckoned with. But mothers used to be at the forefront of the movement. In fact, when people used to talk about anti-vaxxers, they would talk almost exclusively about Jenny McCarthy. But now we've got Del Bigtree and RFK Jr. sort of as the anti-vaccine superstars. So why this big gender shift? Is, is it on purpose? Is it a coincidence? Is there something going on in our world? Solve that for me, Erica. Gosh, if I could solve that for you, Karen, I could solve a lot of problems, couldn't I? Um, you know, it's it's a great question. I don't know that there's an answer there. Um, you know, Lynn Redwood is still involved. She works at Children's Health Defense. She is RFK Jr.'s right-hand woman, um, but she's not the face. And I'm not sure why there has been this shift. Um, but, you know, you watch these rallies, you watch these uh, hearings, and Del Bigtree and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. are are positioned as saviors, as gods within this movement. And yes, they're very charismatic, but there are plenty of charismatic women out there as well. I can't give you a firm reason of, of why other than um, the mothers in the movement have allowed it and have pushed the, these two gentlemen forward themselves with their support. How about Andrew Wakefield? Is he still in the... I know he's around but how involved is he with these groups and what's his kind of um approach to whatever he believes these days wakefield's an interesting character he's still very much out there wakefield now views himself to be a filmmaker um after the success of the movie vaxxed he has gone on to make an additional film about the vaccine injury compensation program um and he is orbiting in different areas you know ever since he got together with l mcpherson the former supermodel he's been doing more of the general natural health um, circuit than necessarily vaccine specific but he's still very much involved i mean they use him as star power when they're doing a big event for example last november there was a big rally in washington dc for the first time the groups came together now you know, we know groups like Children's Health Defense, Informed Consent Action Network have been working together for many years. But this was the first time they appeared with the National Vaccine Information Center. And their big fundraiser at the end of the day was give us money and come have dinner with Andrew Wakefield. Um, so he's still a big draw, but I think he's a little bit more strategic about when he chooses to appear publicly versus yeah. privately. Yeah, it's been interesting to kind of watch his what I would uh, characterize as dissent to where kind of initially it seemed like he was very much trying to stick to what he believed to be science and like stick to what he was researching and his, it was certainly his 
ideology, but he believed in it strongly. And then to watch him start to branch out into other areas of quackery. And I know he was talking at some like 9-11 truther conventions and stuff like that. And just to really watch that, that, that man just fall <laughs> has been something. The other question that I am interested in in these leaders is RFK Jr. Do you have a sense of how he got started in this issue? I, I understand kind of the chain of Del Bigtree getting involved because of being in the that doctor's show that uh, got involved with some of that debate. But how did RFK Jr. end up in this mix? I believe RFK Jr. has said that he knows someone who has been affected by autism. I will also say his connection is probably through Mercury. So RFK Jr. is a well-established, long-standing environmentalist, and one of his key issues was Mercury. So Children's Health Defense actually started as a group called the World Mercury Project. It was founded by a young man who believed that he had been injured by thimerosal in a flu shot. And he made a documentary all about his journey to figure out, you know, what was wrong with him, why there was still thimerosal in certain flu vaccines, and what people thought that could or could not do to people. Um, and so, you know, RFK Jr. got involved. He took that organization from the gentleman who founded it, with his blessing, of course. I mean, it's not like he stole the organization, but he took that over under his own auspices. And after a couple of years of continuing to run that as World Mercury Project, they did the name shift a couple of years ago. Um, Children's Health Defense, obviously, being close to Children's Defense Fund. Um, and again, sort of brings them up in the search engine results, right? But it's never been totally clear beyond that, beyond the Mercury connection, um, what his interests are other than he believes himself to be a crusader. I have a very important question about this sort of Hollywoodization of the anti-vaccine movement, you know, branching out into movies and into podcasts and YouTube shows and, and all of this stuff. My question is, is our podcast better than Dell Big Trees? One hundred and ten percent, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, I will say on, on the Hollywood side, it makes sense that this has become a big issue in Hollywood because what's the greatest story you can tell? Saving children, right? That is the best storyline of all storylines, and so many of the anti-vaccine leaders. Um, activists, even the parents um, who have become a part of this movement, they truly believe that children have been injured by vaccines. Now, the science tells us that that's not true, but that doesn't change the belief. And I think, you know, for many of us who are parents, we understand that sentiment. If I thought my children had been injured, I would stop at nothing to stop whatever had injured my child. Um, and so it's just, it's an appealing idea. I think we also have seen thanks to the political process as well as scientific process, Americans love a good conspiracy theory. So it's this wonderful merging of, you know, there's this huge conspiracy against our children and one man has stepped forth to save them all. It, it's good. It's, a, it's good Hollywood. So where are we now? Is Are we at a disadvantage as far as the anti-vaxxers and their you know, big personality, Hollywood, shishi, frou-frou, uh, moneyed. I mean, I we should probably talk about the money, too, and how they're funding all of their work. Are, are the Is the pro-vaccine world 
behind what the anti-vaxxers are doing. No. I I would like to think we aren't. Are we underfunded compared to the anti-vaxxers? Absolutely. We are at a disadvantage monetarily. However, most people support vaccines. Most people vaccinate their children. Um, Do they have questions about vaccines? Sure. You know, when you have 50 car seats to choose from and someone tells you this is the only vaccine schedule to use, you're going to have questions about that as a parent, and that's okay. But once parents get those questions answered by doctors, by groups like Vaccinate Your Family and Voices for Vaccines, they realize that vaccination, according to the ACIP recommended schedule, is the right thing. And so, we have the people on our side. The question is the volume. Um, and that's where social media comes into play. The anti-vaxxers are not in any way shackled by the truth or by facts, right? So they can say whatever they want about vaccines. They can say whatever they want about organizations like mine, whereas we have to take that 12 to 24 hours to get to the root of whether there's any tiny little seed of truth in what they're saying and figure out how to refute that. So in that respect, we're certainly back on our heels. But you know, there's so many great folks out there, like both of you, who are putting the truth out about vaccines every single day and pushing back against this disinformation. And I think, you know, now with, unfortunately, the coronavirus pandemic, I think people are finally understanding again um, the dangers of infectious diseases and the importance of vaccination. And so while we're in this moment where you know, folks might not know whether or not they're going to get a coronavirus vaccine because it hasn't been approved yet. We don't have the data to know whether or not we would get that. Um, you know, we are at a point where we're understanding the importance of vaccines. I want to mention because I think it's adorable, but also because I think our listeners at this point might be curious. We are, of course, on uh, month 97 of our pandemic. And you are working from home and because of the pandemic both of your children are at home and that's what we're hearing and but also in and amongst this pandemic where our lives have changed drastically i have been asked the question a number of times whether or not that's gonna make the anti-vaxxers go away or how is this all gonna wash out as far as like where where's where's the needle moving to and i don't have a good answer because we're so in the midst of this it's like recording a podcast with your children all around you you're not sure how it's you know what's going to happen next um and by the way your children are adorable but how how do you think this is all going to wash out i don't have a good answer but i i usually give a a guess at it what's your guess I think where we will end up depends on how the COVID-19 vaccine pans out. This is a really fantastic opportunity to educate the public about how vaccines are developed by, in many cases, the pharmaceutical companies and or academics, and then how those vaccines are approved, what FDA looks at. Um, to determine whether or not a vaccine is safe and effective. And then finally, how the Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices, which is an independent board of experts that advises the CDC, how they make recommendations on who should get a vaccine and when. So if we do all of that right, and if these vaccines, because I'm sure there will be more than one vaccine at the end of the day, if these vaccines allow us to get back to normal or 
somewhat close to normal, people will be able to look at it and say, wow, this process works. Vaccines are great. Um, if parts of that fall down, we might lose our opportunity. But I also think simultaneously, while we're doing the good work needed to get these vaccines, safe and effective vaccines to the public, the anti-vaccine movement is starting to align themselves with some really questionable characters. So a lot of the anti-lockdown, anti-mask rallies featured anti-vaccine messaging alongside anti-government, militia-esque messaging, white supremacist and racist messaging. Um, so I think they're headed down a path that will make them questionable in the eyes of many people as well. So we just have to continue to watch those two paths. And all we can control is making sure that, you know, we continue to be as transparent as possible about what's happening in the approval process. I that's I mean, that's a great answer as far as where we're going we're uh, rounding the end of our half hour together. I just want to ask you if you have any other predictions or thoughts you'd like to share about the future of the anti-vaccine movement. I think the anti-vaccine movement will continue to be light on their feet, take advantage of new technologies, you know, even if in, in some wonderful world where Facebook decides they're going to start censoring and banning people, which I don't think will happen, even if they did, I think, you know, the anti-vaccine movement is quick to adjust, to prey on the fears of parents. Um, and so I think, you know, we just have to continue to do our part to reach new audiences, get the message out there that vaccines are safe and effective. It's in the best interest of you, your families, your children, et cetera. Um, you know, and continue to support great groups like Voices for Vaccines and Vaccinate Your Family. Nathan, did you have any last questions you wanted to ask? No, I don't think so. I really appreciate you being here with us. So thank you, Erica, for joining us. And thank you at home for being great listeners and loyal friends. Um, Erica, do you want to tell people where they can find more out about Vaccinate Your Family? Yes, please check us out, vaccinateyourfamily.com. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter as Vax Your Fam, and we're on Instagram. So check us out on all of those platforms. But are you on Parlor? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yeah, this is the first day that I heard of Parlor. I was just looking at Twitter and I'm like, oh, Parlor is a thing now. Yep, the anti vaxxers have been on Parlor for a couple months now. Somebody posted a meme that was like, my friend, I'm leaving. I'm going to parlor and then me and then a picture of King George from Hamilton saying you'll be back. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me on Facebook or Twitter with the handle of Pete's Geek MD. 